0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Just a heads up, y'all.
1: This episode contains some people using racial slurs. What's good, y'all? I'm Gene Demby.
2: And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates.
1: And this is Code Switch.
2: Jean, you know that story about the 50 migrants, most of them from Venezuela, who were deceived into boarding a flight to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm just picturing this group of people who are spent from this treacherous journey just getting to the United States, hoping to find a better life, you know, and then they get tricked into getting on this plane from Texas with promises that on the other end, there'd be housing, there'd be jobs. All that, as we know, was a lie.
2: Exactly. It was a political stunt, this time by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who paid for their flights, by the way. But there was no one there to greet them when they arrived. No coordination, no alerts to agencies that could have helped to settle them. Nada.
1: Yeah, and that was on purpose. And this has been happening all summer. You got Doug Ducey, the governor of Arizona. You got Mm -hmm. Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas. They've been sending migrants to cities that they deem more liberal or cities that have declared themselves so-called sanctuary cities. And they've been doing this with basically no notice, so no one is actually prepared to help these migrants once they land. Yeah.
2: And that was by design. It's, it's so cynical.
1: Mm-hmm. This actually reminds me of a code switch episode we did just a couple years ago, Karen. Um, yes. It was about something called the reverse freedom rides.
2: Right. I remember that. That was, a, uh, if I do say so myself, that was a really good episode. And it has stayed with me and it's popped to the forefront of my mind, Jean, since the news has been focused again on migrants going north. Yeah. And a lot of people
1: have been tweeting about that episode with the recent news. And for that episode, we started out on a Sunday afternoon 60 years ago. A black woman named Lila Mae Williams and nine of her children climb aboard a Greyhound bus at the Brick bus station in Little Rock, Arkansas. And they're wearing their best clothes, their biggest smiles, and they're waving out the window to all these white folks, who are mostly members of the press, but not all of them, who came to see them off. Lila Mae Williams and her children are going north.
2: But this isn't some great migration story, or at least not the kind you're used to hearing. See, Three days, 1,500 miles, and one missed bus connection in Rhode Island later, Lila May and her children are almost at their destination, Hyannisport, Massachusetts. About an hour before that, Lila May asked the driver of bus 3449 to pull over. She wanted to change into her finest clothes, an elegant black dress, white high heels, because she was about to meet President John F. Kennedy and his family. Silent TV footage captures the moment
3: and uh, she had on a hat, white hat, she had, she had the pearls.
2: Betty Williams, one of Lila Mae's daughters, remembers that her mom was all dressed up and ready to start a new life.
3: Yep, she was going to have a job, and, and she was going to be able to support her family. The first question that most of the arrivals asked
2: was, where is President Kennedy? Mm-hmm. We were told that he was going to meet us at the bus the president was not coming to meet them, but Margaret Mosley did. What Mosley knew, and the arrivals didn't, was that there would be no presidential welcome, no jobs, no permanent housing, as Leela May had been promised. Mosley knew that this whole trip was all a big racist hoax. It was one of the most inhuman things that I
4: have ever seen. When they put us on that bus and they brought us from Hyannis to the Kennedy compound, they was almost saying to the Kennedys, here, here, here you go, here's, you know, calling them, you know, mega lovers. You know, here, here you go, here they are.
1: That's Mickey Williams, one of Lila Mae's sons. He was on that bus when it pulled into Highness that day. And in 1962, Mickey, his mother, and his siblings, along with about 200 other Black Southerners, were tricked into boarding buses and simply dropped off in northern cities. Mickey was just five and didn't know they were part of this larger scheme, a sinister, cynical ploy perpetrated by Southern segregationists. If you want to be a friend to the Blacks, the segregationist reason, then you take them.
2: So, I know what you're thinking. Wow, that is eerily familiar to what we're seeing in 2022 with these migrant relocations. But in the case of this story from 1962, it's not U.S. governors protesting immigration policy. It's segregationists striking back at civil rights activists who are trying to desegregate public spaces like bus terminals.
1: So today, we are bringing back that episode, and it comes to us from Gabriella Emanuel. She was reporting at the member station WGBH in Boston at the time, and when Karen and I spoke to her, Gabriella told us that when she first heard about these reverse freedom rides, she didn't even know if they were real.
5: So when I was first told about it, it was presented to me as maybe, possibly a rumor, maybe an urban legend, Uh but then I started doing some digging, and the Wikipedia didn't turn up much, just a few sentences. But when I typed it in to newspapers.com, the archives of the newspapers, hundreds of old newspapers appeared. And it really did happen. And that's not the only thing. The people whose lives were touched by it, they're still living with the consequences of what happened. And Gabriella, you talked to historians too, right? Yeah, I did. And From them, I kept hearing the same thing again and again. And they kept saying there are echoes of that past in America's present.
6: And if it takes two weeks, two months, two years, five or 10 years, we will continue it till the white people up there tell those politicians we are through with this foolishness about uh, civil rights and uh, things that you're using for political purposes.
1: All right. So who is that that we're hearing right there?
5: That is a guy named Amos Guthridge. Here he's in a TV interview from 1962. And he was basically this small-time lawyer in Arkansas, but he was a big-time segregationist. He was known as this, like, soft-spoken guy. But he spearheaded the reverse freedom rides. It all started because he was really pissed off with the freedom rides that had come through town the summer before on Greyhound buses. And Guthridge thought there was no way the Freedom Riders or Northern liberals in general actually cared about integrating interstate transit or civil rights. Instead, he was convinced it was all just a strategy to win black votes. For many
6: years, certain politicians, educators, and certain men of the cloth, religious leaders, have used the white people of the South Uh, as a whipping board, to put it mildly, to further their own ends in their political campaigns in the North, East, and West.
5: So Guthridge joined other segregationists in answering the Freedom Rides with the Reverse Freedom Rides.
2: Reverse
5: Freedom Rides? The segregationists actually named them that? Yeah, they did. And their plan was to use this same weapon, this Greyhound bus, and send African Americans north, Then they'd see if the North liked it when black people suddenly showed up in their backyard.
6: However, we're going to find out if uh, people like Mr. Ted Kennedy, the Kennedys, all of them, uh, really do have an interest in the Negro people, uh, really do have a a, a love for him, for the Negro, uh, and a desire to help him. Wow.
1: So this guy is basically saying to Northerners who are sort of high and mighty about integration in the South, you know, put your money where your mouth is.
5: Exactly. Yeah, that, that is what he's saying. And it was basically a ploy to expose the Norse racism. And in the televised interviews, the segregationists offered lots of justifications for this scheme. Guthridge said it was a philanthropic effort.
6: We began this program in a spirit of beneficence and humanitarianism in an effort to help our Negro citizens.
5: And then there's a guy, George Singleman of Louisiana. This was actually his original idea. He said it was a great American tradition.
6: Years ago, our forefathers put everything in their possession into covered wagons and went out across the plains. In those days, it was rugged Americanism. Now today, for some reason or other, it's being frowned upon. I don't understand it.
2: Oh, yeah. They understood all right. They're just plain dumb and
5: innocent. Yeah, yeah. Their actual motives were definitely far more sinister. And actually, when the TV cameras were off and a decade and a half had passed, George Singleman, who we just heard from, actually spoke more openly about his racist views.
6: There's something in the black makeup that when
4: they get to 11, 12 years of age, their learning, their learning ability comes to
5: halt. The tape is kind of scratchy here, but Singelman is arguing that African Americans can't learn after a certain age.
6: Lying,
1: cheating, toting, stealing, that's the only thing they're good for. So, wait, what is he saying there, Gabrielle?
5: What he's saying is lying, cheating, toting, stealing, that's the only thing they're good for. Singleman and Guthridge basically launched these reverse freedom rides through local segregationist groups called white citizens councils. Oh. They were basically the Ku Klux Klan without the hoods and with a veneer of Southern kindness. Their strategy was cloak racism in respectability.
1: So they were trolling white people in the north, but they were using actual black people as their mechanism to do that.
5: So did that actually work? Uh, Yes and no. So their vision had been to send thousands north. While Singleman didn't admit it, the reality was far smaller. Several hundred African Americans, mostly from Arkansas and Louisiana, accepted the northbound tickets to New York, New Hampshire, Los Angeles, Idaho. The list goes on. The largest number, about a hundred, went to the bus stop closest to the Kennedys summer White House in Massachusetts. And that was far, far away from the Williams home in rural Arkansas..: So Gabriella, quickly, can
2: we talk about the Williamses a little bit? Like, what was their life like? before they even got on that bus.
5: Yeah, so I talked to Betty and Mickey Williams, and they remember growing up in Arkansas as both idyllic and tragic. They say there was the joy of fishing in the pond out back, and extended family was everywhere.
3: Hmm. Because my grandmother had like a big flower yard with all kinds of flowers, and she had a garden with everything that you can imagine and care about. She had it in there.
5: But they also say there was the trauma of whippings at schools and relatives dying because they had little or no access to medical care.
4: I remember the flooding in the house, snakes underneath the beds. I mean, that's all. we were poor. We were really poor.
5: Still, they say their mother managed to cook all of their meals from scratch in their tiny three-room house. And she insisted on schooling for every kid. And they always remember this. They say she looked glamorous all the time.
2: I can see that in my head.
5: Yeah, yeah. But of course, at the time, Arkansas was segregated and the Williams family was confined to the black side of town. Betty says as a kid, she didn't know anyone who was white. Never thought about this is different. Why, is it, why are we separated like this?
3: Why we can't go to school together? Why we can't sit and eat together? I never even questioned that.
5: But her mother was aware of the forces that swirled outside.
4: My dad always had three pictures on a wall. John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Robert F. Kennedy.
3: My mother was very much a Kennedy person. Very much.
5: The Kennedys were basically seen as being sympathetic to African-Americans, even if they were slow to move on issues of civil rights.
1: Yeah, I mean, we talked about this not too long ago in the podcast, but Kennedy, you know, for his reputation, was actually really squishy on civil rights, even though he had this reputation as a champion of it
2: and it's not that unusual. I mean, portraits of Jack Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy often hung side by side in so many of the black houses I was in growing up. Yep. JFK sort of slow walked civil rights legislation because he was counting on waiting until he was reelected to right. do what he wanted to do.
1: And of course, LBJ is the one who actually did the big the big stuff
2: because Jack Kennedy was killed 3 years into his first term. Right.
5: At the time that all of this is happening, Martin Luther King Jr. is speaking out against the reverse freedom rights because, I mean, he knew it was a stunt. It wasn't just him. All these kind of civil rights activists were talking, speaking out against it. But the warning never made it to the Williams family. And actually, to the contrary, the segregationists specifically recruited people like Lila Mae.
1: So wait, so the Williams family never heard about any of the admonitions around this reverse freedom rights ploy?
5: As far as we know, they didn't realize that this was a ploy. And that could be because they wanted people who were in desperate situations and really didn't have anywhere else to turn. Hmm. They targeted single-parent households, welfare-dependent families, and people who were just recently released from prison. Huh. And then they promised them everything.
3: My mom though when she came to the North, she was going to have a better life for her children. You know, to have better jobs and and better housing, better everything for all of us.
5: Of course, that everything turned out to be nothing. There's one account from the time that suggests it wasn't only empty promises. That some white citizens' councils threatened to take families off the welfare rolls if they didn't board the buses.
1: So they forced them to do the reverse freedom.
5: (laughs) In effect. Now, Betty and Mickey learned much later that their family's journey north was part of this bigger ploy. So they don't actually know if their mother was coaxed or coerced. But what they do know, they say, is that their mother was grasping for anything that might help her children.
3: Everything that a mom could do, everything within her power, everything within her reach, my mom did it.
5: There's a newspaper account from the time that shows that Lila Mae told the segregationist that she could not take her children north until they finished the school year. So class let out on a Friday. That Sunday, segregationist Amos Guthridge sent a car to pick up Lila Mae and her nine youngest kids, who were 2 to 14. Betty followed later that summer on a different bus. So what happened is Guthridge drove the Williams family from their tiny town, 150 miles, to Little Rock's bus terminal. He bought them ice cream and root beer on the way to the terminal.
6: They arrived in his uh, station wagon. All of them kind of jammed into this station wagon.
5: That's Ernie Dumas, who was at the time a reporter for the Arkansas Gazette, the liberal paper in town. Now, Guthridge had told all the local news outlets that he'd be having a press conference.
6: And so when he was there, he made a little grinning speech. And he'd say, now these fine, fine people, this this wonderful woman and her fine little children.
5: Dumas says Guthridge then paused and winked at his fellow segregationists. Dumas says he and everyone at his integrationist newspaper thought this was a travesty. That's his word. But... Outside of his liberal newspaper, he says the local opposition that existed was based on the idea that the scheme would make the city look bad. It would damage the state's economy. It was not out of concerns for the Williams or the others.
6: The vast majority of white Arkansans at that time were virulent uh, segregationists.
5: Dumas is now in his 80s and he still lives in Arkansas. He says he wasn't able to interview Lila May back then in 1962. But he does remember her seeming a little reluctant, perhaps a little embarrassed. There is silent TV footage from the bus station, and there she looks focused. Some of the kids are giddy. And the striking thing is that the family is moving their whole lives, and yet they have almost no luggage. Hmm. And that's because they were told everything was going to be taken care of. So after the press conference, Leela Mae Williams herds her children onto the bus, toward the back of the bus, and then onward toward a promise that was a lie.
2: After this short break, the reverse freedom riders arrive in Hyannis, and the village, state, and the country has to figure out how to respond.
0: Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside.
1: Okay, so before the break, Gabriella, you were telling us that the reverse freedom rides were this test from the South that the North was meant to
5: fail, right? That's exactly right, yeah.
6: They have been crying the uh, sing-song in behalf of the Negroes throughout the nation. And, of course, now when it comes time for them to put up or shut up, they have shut up.
5: So that is George Singleman, the segregationist, in a TV interview in the spring of 1962. But in Hyannis, at least, there are some people who did not shut up. There was a crowd of more than 100 waiting when the Greyhound bus carrying the first reverse Freedom Rider arrived in Hyannis. It was May 12th, 1962, at 3.55 p.m. The bus was about 30 minutes behind schedule. In a suit and tie, David Harris stepped down. The 43-year-old African-American Army veteran received a big welcome. There were speeches and plenty of reporters. Senate candidate Ted Kennedy was there to meet him. So what kind of
2: reaction did these Northerners have?
5: For David Harris, people cheered when he told them, quote, it felt mighty good when I crossed that Mason-Dixon line. Mm -hmm. In the months to come, the Greyhound buses kept arriving, but the spectators disappeared. Ted Kennedy never showed up again. Only Margaret Mosley and a few others remained. Mosley was part of this small crew of Hyannis residents who proved Singleman wrong. The local NAACP chapter and a few concerned residents decided to team up. Half the group was black, half white. Basically, what they did is they had extensive meeting notes in which they would divvy up tasks. And uh, they actually gave themselves a name, the Refugee Relief Committee. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. And they have this line where they say uh, they, they were kind of helpless and sad and homeless, and that's what a refugee is, even though, obviously, they were from inside the U.S. Hmm. So – Mosley was actually both a member of the Unitarian Church in Barnstable locally, um, but she was also a founding member of the local chapter of the NAACP. And she was in charge of meeting the families, among many other things. And she remembers and one of the children asking asked her, me,
2: Where are the cotton fields?
5: And Mosley uh, was actually interviewed before her death in 1997.
3: I said, We have no cotton fields here. He said,
2: uh, well, what am I going to do to find employment? Uh, I can chop cotton. I don't know how to do anything else. It's heartbreaking. That's a child asking, where can I find work?
1: Which kind of underlines how much Lila May Williams was willing to do to make this trip, right? How that's what they were.
5: Yeah. In many ways, it was these children and their families that really began to change the public opinion. When segregationists started sending these single mothers and lots of kids, like eight kids, nine kids, eleven kids, that made their callousness obvious, and it made many Southerners worry it was hurting their self-image.
1: So it became a PR problem for the people behind the Reverse Freedom Rides.
5: Exactly. Yeah, and in the end, it ended just a handful of months after it began, struggling to find funds and to recruit the riders. But even when the scheme was over and the reporters had lost interest, the Williams family and the others were still 1,500 miles away from everything they'd ever known.
3: It has been like a struggle, a really hard struggle.
5: Betty Williams was 18 and actually eight months pregnant when she became a reverse freedom rider. Now she's 75 and has spent her life cleaning houses and working in the women's locker room at the Harvard Club, which is this fancy members-only club for Harvard alumni. Still, she says she thinks back to that summer when segregationists in Arkansas sent her family north and when some in Massachusetts were ready to receive them.
3: They was nice to my family.
5: Not Everyone in this overwhelmingly white town embraced the new Black families, but many townspeople did donate toys, money. Clothing, food,
3: social workers, they all was very nice to my mother.
5: The committee convinced the local community college to open its dorms to the new arrivals. The local jail provided bedding. And when summer semester started and the students were coming back, they actually, this group, lobbied to get the nearby Otis Air Force Base to open up its barracks. But despite the welcome and all the efforts from the local townspeople, Betty says she sensed a kind of a difference and a distance. People don't think
3: the same. They don't do the same. The culture is a whole lot different from where we was raised up.
2: It makes a whole lot of sense that she would feel somewhat alienated.
5: Yeah, exactly. She ended up saying basically, like, things weren't easy. I I remember I used to go
3: out and I used to never smile that much. I never smiled. I don't know why that was. I never smiled.
5: So while Betty and the rest of her family, the Williams, were finding their footing, the whole country was debating. One governor actually compared the reverse freedom rides to Nazis deporting Jews. One congressman from the South delighted in watching the North squirm. The governor of Massachusetts pledged to help, but he also worried about his welfare rolls and that they'd get overburdened. When push came to shove, he called for legislation to outlaw the rides, and he wanted the federal government to step in. But President Kennedy largely tried to avoid the topic. However, he was asked about it at a news conference.
6: Do you have any comment on the so-called reverse freedom rides whereby some southern segregationists are attempting to send Negroes north? Yes, well, I think it's a rather cheap exercise in, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, this country, people moving every day by the thousands, 25 percent of our
2: population. <laughs> See, what had happened was...
5: He ends up doing that for a minute, he's trying to figure out what to say. A uh,
2: minute's a long time when you're grasping for uh, for rope that isn't anywhere near you. I
5: said the
6: other day, there's no city traditionally that has enjoyed a happier reputation than New Orleans. And uh, that reputation, in my opinion, based on my visit there Friday, is highly deserved. And I would not let one man possibly blacken it.
2: Possibly blacken it, Lord. Well, that language aside, what JFK really didn't want was for news of the reverse freedom rides to knock a hole in his plans for re-election in 1964. He needed the South's votes, and he couldn't alienate Southern politicians. So, Gabriella, what did the administration do?
5: I've been trying to figure out exactly what the federal government was thinking and doing, and through the Kennedy Library and three Freedom of Information Act requests. I still don't have a complete answer, Hmm. but here is what I do know. President John Kennedy asked the U.S. Justice Department to look into whether there was anything illegal about the rides. And his brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, he called it a disgrace and deplorable, but ended up finding that no federal law was being violated.
1: So basically, this is messed up, but our hands are tied to do anything. All right, so, Gabriella, the Williamses couldn't stay in Hyannis, right, because there were no jobs there?
5: Right. By and large, uh, the people who were dropped in Hyannis um, could not stay there. A very small number did stay. Some actually ended up returning to the South, but the majority, like the Williams family, ended up moving to Boston in search of work. And in a big city for the first time, remember, they come from a tiny town in Arkansas, the family was living in one of the most notorious urban housing projects. The projects
4: ran down, I mean, caca all over the place, concrete, bricks. Projects ain't nothing to be proud of.
5: That's Mickey Williams. He remembers his mother planting flowers around the projects. She was actually recognized by the mayor for her work. But... For his mother, he says, those flowers were just a reminder of what they had had in Arkansas. But behind the flowers, behind all of that, things were kind of beginning to crumble. They didn't have their support network. They didn't have their relatives. So this tight-knit family began to fray. Betty Williams says her family was not acting like a family. She remembers the time was really, really hard.
3: And the biggest struggle that I ever had was not having my family be with me. That was, that was the biggest struggle that I ever went through in my life.
5: Things that they'd never experienced in their tiny southern town began to define their lives. Drugs, jail, neighbors who didn't know or care about them, siblings who didn't care about one another.
3: Well, we wasn't like that when we, was, when we was in the South. All this happened when we came here.
2: So Leela Mae had come north in order to give her children a better chance at life, thinking there would be less racism. And basically what she found was different racism.
1: Right. And like if Mickey and the Williamses came to the north when he was five in 1962, by the time he was in high school, he was smack in the middle of the Boston school integration crisis. He we would been attacked in school by white kids.
2: Exactly. There were beatings and riots and white parents screaming at black youngsters who were getting off school buses. Grown women, Jean, throwing rocks at black children and the buses they came in on because these kids had the audacity in their eyes to enroll in their schools. It was a nightmare.
4: I just remember that they were all outside, surrounded the school. White people, white kids, young guys, old guys. They had dogs, they had chains. They're trying to get into the school. From that point on, we had to be escorted up to the school by the Black Panthers.
5: And it goes without saying that this was not what Leela Mae had envisioned when they were heading north. Mm-hmm. Both Mickey and Betty say their late mother came north with the single goal of improving her children's lives.
3: She tried with every ounce of strength that she had to try to hold this family together. She used to just cry. She used to just cry.
2: So she felt guilty. I mean, it wasn't her fault, but she felt like I I brought them from home to some place that was supposed to be better. And not only wasn't it better, it was dangerous. It was terrible to them. And so I can imagine her being totally distraught by this.
5: And when I talk to Betty and Mickey, they say that the stress and the pressure of all of it is what began to kind of pull the family apart and take all the siblings and Different directions. But now, with all these years having passed, both Mickey and Betty say they've resolved not to focus their energy on the segregationists who deceived and uprooted their family.
4: I don't try not to let it consume me because I, I don't
5: want
3: no hatred to live in my heart nowhere. It, I don't have no room for that.
5: Betty has ended up working things through with the therapist, and over the years, Mickey says, When he's not at his job working for an electrical company, he has found healing in the Boston Public Library. He is working on a series of children's books, biographies of uncelebrated African-Americans who have done remarkable things. They're carefully illustrated with colored pencil. He says he liked the children in his predominantly African-American neighborhood of Boston to read these books and think to themselves.
4: We're from something. Our people did something. We contributed. And we got to keep that up.
5: Even though Mickey has spent years flipping through history books looking for people to profile, he says only recently has he begun to think of his own family's journey that that, too, might have a place in history.
1: So the reverse freedom rods were all over the news. um, And obviously... Mickey and Betty are still living in the fallout of them. Did they ever talk to their mom about what exactly happened?
5: The fascinating thing is not only has the rest of America forgotten about the reverse freedom rights, the Williams family kind of has too. I actually asked them that exact question. Did you ever talk to your mom about this trick?
4: She never discussed anything. Nothing. Nothing at all.
3: Never. She act just like it didn't even exist.
1: So, was she, like, embarrassed by it, or...?
5: Something. They said she was really private, but she never talked about it. And it it might have been that pride and the embarrassment, or maybe just the haziness that was caused by the segregationists lying to them. But somehow, Williams' family lore became that they were freedom riders, not reverse freedom riders.
7: We would see different programs on TV about the civil rights movement, and my mother would say, oh, we played a part in in this.
5: Jamal Williams is one of Betty's sons. He's now a professional skateboarder in New York. But growing up, he says he heard mention of it here and there, but it was always kind of in these very vague terms. To
7: me, it was always the freedom rides. Oh, we were freedom riders.
5: And then it was only at his grandmother, Lila Mae Williams, funeral... And she passed away in 2013 that Jamal saw a pamphlet about the reverse freedom rights. It was then that he had like a little inkling that there was more to know. So he went home and he says he started Googling.
7: And I was like, whoa. And then I was like, wait, I don't think my family knows this part of what these the, the white segregationists were doing.
5: Jamal says it's been this huge revelation for him and that he's he's still figuring out what to think about it. But when I asked him, he said he knows one thing for sure, and that is that his grandmother and his mother fought really hard for a better life. And when the world treated them harshly, he said they kept looking for sunlight.
7: To see the things that they've gone through and see the joy and, and, and happiness that they still possess is amazing because there's a lot of families that I know that have been, you know, you can see that their spirits have been broken. And
2: so... Gabriella, you said earlier that this story echoes some contemporary issues regarding race. How?
5: Let me introduce you to an expert who I spoke to. Uh, well, My name is Clive Webb and I'm professor of
3: uh, American history.
5: Webb is at the University of Sussex in England. He has written one of the only academic articles on the reverse freedom rides. It was actually published 15 years ago. Huh. He is the type of historian who specializes in studying racists. He told me when I talked to him that he heard President Trump explain the idea of putting undocumented immigrants on buses and dropping them off in so-called sanctuary cities. The professor thought back to the segregationists like Amos Guthridge in 1962. It kind of eerie. And
6: they want more people in their sanctuary cities? Well, we'll give them more people. We can give them a lot. We can give them an unlimited supply. We're going to find out if uh, people like Mr. Ted Kennedy, the Kennedys, all of them, uh, really do have an interest in the Negro people, uh, really do have a a, a love for him, for the Negro, uh, and a desire to help him. In
3: 1962, what was happening was the actions of a political fringe group. And in 2019, it's the federal government.
5: I reached out to the White House about this and they didn't respond to multiple efforts to kind of get comment or something. Ouch. Yeah, but Webb, the historian, says, remember. Uh, The white conservatives who
3: were behind that campaign then actually underestimated the decency of many ordinary people.
5: And I think there's actually something else they also underestimated, if they even thought about it, which is how long of a shadow this would have, just how long this impacted the family. I mean, it's now decades later, and they still think back to that summer when, as they say, everything changed for them. It
7: was a horrible thing, the game of politics that these guys were playing. But at the same time, I would not be here if that game was not played. So I have mixed feelings about it.
2: I mean, it's interesting that out of all of this turmoil and this long-term trauma for the Williamses, that there was a silver lining, which they did discover that some people were actually welcoming, uh, wanted to include them in life in Boston. And the grandchildren, I guess, seemed to have done pretty well, like Jamal.
1: But another way to look at it is that all of the things that the segregationists anticipated, right, a sort of like institutional indifference to black folks, Turned out to be broadly true, right? It wasn't like there was this institutional acceptance of these people. It was more like individual acceptance of them, right?
5: Exactly. And it was momentary. It was right after they arrived. Kind of there was help and support. And then over the long term, they, actually the reverse Freedom Riders ended up staying good friends with each other. But as far as I know, none of them stayed in touch with the townspeople in Hyannis who had helped them.
2: Was Gabriella Emmanuel reporting for us from WGBH in Boston in 2019? She's now at member station WBUR.
1: KGB, you, you know what was one of the most interesting things to me about both the Martha's Vineyard fiasco recently and the earlier one in the '60s on Cape Cod?
2: Hmm. That, as the French say, the more things change, the more they stay the same.
1: I mean, yeah, that that part. <laughs> but also then and now. The people who were conspiring to send these unsuspecting migrants north, whether we're talking about the migrants from the South in the 60s or the migrants from South America, you know, recently, those people thought that residents at these destinations would be, you know, angry, they'd be flustered, that they would not be welcoming. And instead, the opposite turned out to be true in Martha's Vineyard.
2: I know, right? People stepped up, Gene. Not just nonprofits, but regular people came in and said, what can I do? They rounded up islanders who spoke Spanish to help. They found places for the migrants to stay. They collected warm clothes, because it is New England and the weather's getting colder. They gave out meals, all with hugs and handshakes and words of encouragement. It was not the reaction the governors assumed they'd have. Mm -hmm. To
1: KGB, did that restore some of your faith in humanity?
2: (laughs) I'm still me, aren't I? (laughs) I mean... I'm not going to give up my day job as Code which is resident cynic, just yet, though. Of
1: course, that seat belongs to you and only you. And on that note, let's let's quit while we're ahead. You should. <laughs> and that's our show, y'all. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch, obviously. I'm on Twitter at G-E-E-D-E-E-215. KGB is at Karen Bates. all one word. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at
7: NPR.org.
2: And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Special thanks to the Rhode Island Historical Society, Tulane's Amistad Research Center, the William Brewster Nickerson Cape Cod History Archives, and Tale of Cape Cod This episode was produced by Jess Kung Angela Vang and Christina Kala It was edited by Steve Drummond Leah Danella, and Dahlia Mortada
1: And a big shout out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive That's B.A. Parker Kumari Devarajan Alyssa Jong Perry and L.A. Johnson I'm June Demby
2: And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates Bees, yo. See ya
0: This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
7: On NPR's Throughline, We cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe find NPR's throughline wherever you get your podcasts